Sub Freaks, it's your boy Marty here to introduce this emergency rip of TFTC. A lot going on in the world right now. There's a banking crisis under the underway, unless you were living under a rock. If you are, if you have been, good for you. You get to miss out on all this, this fun stuff. It's not fun. It's serious. But I brought Parker back on because this is the theme of our conversation over the last, gosh, five years. Is you can, you can focus in on the individual crises, whether it be 2008, 2020, or the crisis we're going now and going through now and try to point out individual actors, whether it be Silicon Valley Bank signature as bad actors or bad risk managers, but the overarching theme that underlies all these crises is the Federal Reserve and their policy. These crises are inevitable with this policy. Parker breaks it all down in this episode. Uh, but before we get to the rip, I do want to read the top four boosts in the last episode with Lynn Alden, which was titled, The Fed is Losing Money. <laughs> so uh, very good back-to-back if you want to get an understanding for the Fed losing money and then its policy creating a crisis that Parker and I described. These are good back-to-back episodes. At KRSH, 20,000 sats, I reckon the private sector is more sensitive to Fed policies than the public one, so I find it more likely that supply destruction will be stronger than demand destruction. At least here in the communist-leaning westernmost part of East Europe, we think ourselves to fancy, too fancy to embrace balkanization and heedlessly follow Western policies like children trying to win favors with older peers. That is only what is perceived through social media and politics. In the real world, we will win. Yes, we will. Thank you for the sats, KRSH. At Blockchain Bug, 5,000 sats. Two thumbs up. At Fightless Birds, Flightless, oh no, Fightless Birds, 1,000 sats. Feeling pessimistically optimistic after listening. Or is that optimistically pessimistic? Hmm, I don't know. And at Michael Matulif, great episode. Shaka bra. Shout out to you guys for the boostograms if you're participating via the value for value model and podcasting 2.0 thank you for your support if you're not you're listening on uh, apple spotify podcasting app that's not podcasting 2.0 enabled just give us a, a five-star review subscribe give us a rate or give us a five-star rating and then write a review helps us go a long way if you're listening via youtube give us a like subscribe hit the notification button I think people are going to need this information, so I think it's important that we that we pump it as much as possible to make sure people are getting the signal throughout all the noise. There's a lot of noise, and Parker just provided the world with a lot of signal. So I think you guys are going to enjoy it. It was brought to you by our good friends at River. River survived the chaos of the weekend. People were worried. They have many bank accounts, and they're a Bitcoin company right now. If you're out there listening to the show and you don't have Bitcoin yet, and you want to access Bitcoin, go to river.com slash TFTC, set up account, set up an account and start getting exposure to Bitcoin if you want to. It's very easy. It's a full-blown Bitcoin company in exchange of just one part of River. They have mining services. They have an API if you want to build on the Lightning Network, River Lightning Services. Uh, and they just updated their the UX on the app last week. It's very clean. If you were sitting on the sidelines, you came to this podcast, learn more about Bitcoin, uh, and you're thinking about getting on board to go to river.com slash TFTC. It's the best exchange out there. They built their whole exchange. They eliminate 
as many trusted third parties as po possible. This means they built their own wallets. Any Bitcoin you buy is held 100% in reserves in a multi-sig wallet that they built. They're a Bitcoin company. They're doing it the right way. They have focus. Go to river.com slash TFTC. This rip was also brought to you by our good friends down the hall at Unchained Capital. Unchained Capital is here to help you eliminate single points of failure in your custody model. This banking crisis is highlighting the risks that exist with third parties, the counterparty risks that exist. People woke up on Friday. If they had bank accounts at Silicon Valley Bank, they did not have access to their money. They fell prey to the counterparty risk, the custody risk in the banking sector. Unchained eliminates that by using Bitcoin, and most importantly, Bitcoin's native multi-sig properties to help you eliminate uh, single points of failure and eliminate this third-party custody risk. Their vault is a two or three multi-sig in which you hold two keys, Unchained holds one. As long as you have those two keys, you have access to your Bitcoin. You can move it whenever you want to. There's nobody going to stop you. The Bitcoin network can't stop you. Unchained can't stop you. Silicon Valley Bank can't stop you. It's a very powerful thing. It's the lesson we're learning right now. Go to unchained.com slash consultation. Set up a call with their consultation team. They'll get you set up with the vault. They'll teach you about their IRA product, their inheritance protocol, their trading desk, their lending desk. It's a financial institution of the future building on Bitcoin's primitives. It's a beautiful thing. Unchained.com slash consultation. Tell them the TFTC sent you and you'll get $50 off the vault onboarding service. This group was also brought to you by our good friends at CrowdHealth. CrowdHealth is here to help you reimagine healthcare. Uh, crazy times right now. A lot of people losing jobs. <laughs> and maybe if you lose your job, you go to Cobra. Cobra is extremely expensive. I left a job and then was paying health insurance via Cobra. It was obscene. I moved to CrowdHealth because number one, it gives me more sovereignty over my healthcare expenses. It's not health insurance. Um, and number two, it's much cheaper. So like in these trying times when things are getting crazy and you need to cut costs, crowd health, not only is it better all around healthcare service, it's cheaper as well. When you have a healthcare event, you need to go to a doctor, you get the bill, you give it to crowd health. They negotiate it lower. Uh, and then you pay the first $500 of that bill and the rest gets crowdfunded by the crowd health community. They have a Bitcoin community now too. If you go to join crowdhealth.com slash TFTC, sign up for the Bitcoin community. You'll get $99 a month for your subscription for the first six months. Uh, and after a certain amount of months of putting dollars in your USD account, uh, crowd health will begin stacking Bitcoin alongside your dollar account there. So you can speculative attack your future healthcare costs. Go to joincrowdhealth.com slash TFTC. Last but not least, again, a lot of layouts going out across markets. We're building the new financial system, the new monetary system here in the Bitcoin world. If you're looking to get in and looking to get a job, maybe you're a Bitcoiner who's been stuck in tech and banking and some other part of the economy, you believe you have skills to give Bitcoin companies building the future that you want to see, go to bitcointalent.co. It's a recruiting service built by Bitcoiners who understand Bitcoin. They'll understand your depth of knowledge and what you could be good at. And then they understand companies, what they're offering and what they're looking for. Bitcointalent.co. Tell them the TFTC sent you. If you're looking for a job in the Bitcoin space, this is the best place to go. And then 
On top of that, if you're hiring in the Bitcoin space, if you're a company looking for the best talent, Bitcoin Talent Co., their team is the best equipped to go find that talent. They understand Bitcoin. They understand multisig. They understand lightning. They understand mining. If, if you need somebody to help you get talent, these are the people to do it. Go to bitcointalent.co. Tell them the TFTC sent you and enjoy this for it with Parker Lewis. Heavy times, freaks. Heavy times. But let's ground ourselves. The Fed is the problem here. We have a solution with Bitcoin. It's time to batten down the hatches, focus, and begin building a better future for our children. Okay. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Parker, is it happening? Define it. Are we are we watching a systemic collapse of the central banking system here in the United States? I think we're seeing the onset of the next financial crisis, and there will always be a next financial crisis until the the system collapses entirely. I think it's hard to predict, or you know, is this the last cycle? Um, it's probably not, but um, I think that this is. You know, if, if there was 2008 and there was 2020, this is um, a financial crisis that is consistent with the scope, magnitude, consequences of that. Yeah. Is it the onset of the crisis or are we like in the middle of it? Because obviously. I mean, yeah. the how, how you define lead up, right? Like going back to 2019, 2020 or even 2008. The first in 2008, people often look back to Bear Stearns, but it was really the summer of 2007 when the writing was on the wall, when the first cracks happened. So I think the the cracks in the facade had already happened. And then it's when things get to crazy town and just start falling apart. When I say that we're in the crisis, it's, you know, when it becomes obvious to a wide range of people. Yeah. No, this is why. It's great to be here in the Bitcoin Commons and have access to you in person because I think considering what's going on today, what has been going on over the last week, obviously the tremor started with Silvergate. You had to run on that bank. Last week spread to Silicon Valley Bank. Then we wake up this morning. Every regional bank stock uh, has has halted trading. Uh, We had Signature get shut down yesterday seems like something is happening on the back end of the banking system. A lot of the pundits are like, oh, this was a a crisis onset by crypto and the risk taken there. But I think building on the conversations that started many years ago on my rooftop in Brooklyn, talking about Ender's Game, uh, building up to today, I think sitting down with you and getting into the first principles of actually everything that's going on from a liquidity profile behind the scenes is very important. So you've been looking at charts over the weekend and diving into some stuff that will pull up on the screen. But at the end of the day, this is a crisis that seems driven by the fed and their interest rate policy over the last year. Yeah. I think that that's 
um, something we should talk about where um, to an extent this does feel or part of this feels like choke point 2.0 but um, I think that that the, the bigger thing that's happening in that ultimately people will say that you know the crypto sell-off had you know caused Silvergate and then um, and then there were knock-on effects but in reality, um, and I think um, who somebody put out a tweet about the unrealized losses for all the banks. And it's important to recognize that this whole mess is 100% a function of the Federal Reserve. Like they set it up, you know, and knocked it down themselves. Um, I think that the statistic is there's 700 billion of unrealized losses on bonds that the banks hold, right? And uh, we can talk a little bit about that, but the Fed functionally printed a lot of money, started to, uh, to or created a dynamic where there was out of control inflation. And then in an attempt to try to rein that in, they started aggressively raising interest rates, which caused the value of bonds, which the banks held to collapse. Or, I mean, collapse is, is a strong term in terms of bonds, but if bonds drop by 10 to 20%, um, that's a significant uh, reduction in the va mar market value of bonds. And that is really what caused Silvergate issues, right? It wasn't the outflow of demand. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll go into a lot of other things, but take the opportunity just to, to give Silvergate credit that they withstood a 70 to 80% drawdown in deposits. Um, they did not need to be taken over by the FDIC. They weren't taken over by the FDIC. Um, the, the thing that created issues for them was that in the, in the midst of them needing to, um, to satisfy deposit withdrawals, in that intervening period, the Fed in increased interest rates seven or eight times to four and a half to five percent. And didn't matter what you were holding, what credit instrument, the 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 value um, decline that happens when you raise interest rates caused those caused those losses to be realized, um, and and then that created um, the big issues, which then uh, Silicon Valley Bank signature, realistically, any bank that was holding treasuries or mortgage-backed securities, or any credit instrument, right? Um, they, the Fed created a hole. Um, and, and they didn't just create the hole by raising interest rates. They created the hole by w withdrawing or basically draining 25% of all the cash that existed in the banking system in a 12-month period after inducing a massive credit expansion. So it's not just the mark-to-market -market issue. It's that they were creating a mark-to-market issue by raising interest rates, but at the same time, they were taking actual dollars out of the system. Um, and the weakest were going to be exposed, right? And Silvergate wasn't the weakest. Silicon Valley Bank might have been the weakest, right? They, you know, Silvergate sustained an 80% drawdown in reserves, didn't need FDIC, um, or the FDIC didn't shut them down. And... At the end of the day, that happened over a four-month period. Silicon Valley Bank, boom, a day, 24 hours gone. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> no, and I saw Alex Leishman tweeting over the weekend that even though Silvergate 
has since shuttered their doors. They're still processing withdrawals even to this day. Yeah. And, and I went in that to, to say like, this is 100% about the fed. The fed printed a shit ton of money in between September of 2019 and May of 2020. And then in a more controlled way through 2021 functionally, or at least through the fall. And that's when inflation really started to rip. Right. And then, um, started to get a lot of pressure and also in their kind of core function of quote price stability, tried to rein that in by jacking up interest rates and literally on, on both sides, on the consequences of flooding the, the system with a bunch of reserves, as well as then how they tried to exit, that this had nothing to do with, quote, Bitcoin, crypto, um, like didn't even have anything to do with FTX. Um, it had, had to do with the Fed, and they might like to say, hey, look over there. But like if you look at what's actually happening systemically, fundamentally, um, it's all of their, you know, of, by, for the Fed, um, having nothing to do with Bitcoin. Yeah. And this problem becomes like very obvious too when you consider the fact that post-2008, Dodd-Frank comes to light and it changes like the reserve requirements or the capital requirements. And they dedicated like a tranche of banks, reserve capital to these quote-unquote risk-free bonds. So as you're jacking up rates, the price of those bonds is going down. And as a bank, you're required by law to hold a basket of those of those treasuries in capital reserves. And the problem seems pretty obvious when, when we think about it now in retrospect, even though it's hard to even call it retrospect as it's happening right now. But thinking about it like, oh, they put these capital requirements in for these assets that are very tightly correlated to Fed policy. Like you raise rates, the bond prices are going to fall. And so the, the capital in that, that, that requirement is going down. And so then maybe you got to pull from, from more liquid deposits, buy more bonds, which then creates a liquidity crisis. If people want to withdraw and then it's an exacerbating doom loop. Yeah. I mean, could we pull up the, it might be if we could pull up this uh, Silicon Valley bank balance sheet, just to like talk about like some of these dynamics looking actually at um, a bank balance sheet. Okay. Um, we zoom in a little bit, Logan. Yeah, can you? I don't know how this will zoom. Okay, my eyesight's good enough for there. Yeah, perfect. Okay, so, and this is Silicon Valley Bank? It looks like it, but Silicon Valley Bank. Yeah, it must be. Yeah, yeah it is. Um, Okay, so they have so as of December they had thirteen point eight billion of cash, and then they had twenty six billion of available for sale securities, at fair value so twenty six billion. Then held to maturity securities, ninety one billion, um, and then because, and I, I'm not gonna like they have probably some of these loans are, are, um, in a different category, bro. Like if you see the seventy four billion in loans, right? That those loans at amortized costs, that is functionally like the core of a bank's business. Like that's that's them issuing loans to to their customers. The 26 billion and the 91 billion that are up in 
total investment securities, um, that that is them buying bonds. That's not them originating loans and holding those loans. That was the Fed increased their balance sheet to stem a 2020 financial crisis. And then they can't go out and issue loans. They can't create demand for loans. So a bunch of deposits flood into their system. And what do they do rather than hold those just deposits as reserves, they went into the market and bought treasury, which is very different than originating loans. Now, those those seventy four billion of loans, those those are highly illiquid, and um, the you know kind of just like drawing the distinction between what those two things are. Now, if you go down, Logan, and you see like they had one hundred and seventy three billion of of deposits. So, um, and I don't know. It, what break? See, we've got demand deposits of eighty billion and interest-bearing deposits of ninety-two. I don't know if you know to what extent those interest-bearing deposits have time. You know, kind of like where a, a demand deposit you can show up tomorrow and get your money back. A, a, a time deposit is generally like you can show up in thirty days or sixty days. Um, but realistically, what happened was, and I think my order of magnitude might be slightly off, but if you scroll back up, Logan, that they they started having um, basically, I think in, in Silicon Valley ca- Bank's case, because a lot of their customers were venture back cu- customers, they were cash burning. So, so their deposits started to decline on net um, at the bank level. And they needed to sell some of the available for sale securities and the held to maturity securities. Well, when they did that, because the value of those had gone down. And this is the exact same thing that happened with Silvergate. They had to realize losses of like when they bought them versus when they needed to sell them and they incurred a $2 billion loss. Well, if you aggress, if you're sitting on over a hundred billion of, um, even if they're short term, but I think in the cases of Silicon Valley, they were longer duration. Like mortgage-backed securities. Mortgage-backed securities or just longer dated treasuries. What do you? What does the Fed expect to happen if they flood the system with a bunch of reserves, and then those naturally flow into okay, the bank's going to buy credit instruments, and then you jack up interest rates. And now, what 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 the Fed functionally did was they created the hole in these bank balance sheets. They should have told them like, hey, don't you know, get rid of your treasury, get get rid of all your credit instruments before. But that's what the bank is in the business of holding credit instruments. Like there might be a distinction between the loans that they originate, that seventy-four billion, and the you know, one hundred and twenty billion ish that they're holding. You know, because they didn't have anything else to do with the cash. Uh, but that that is ultimately what created the environment that le- that made them so susceptible to a bank run. But it's not specific to Silicon Valley Bank. It it it's systemic. It's at every bank. Yeah, I mean, I, there was stats going out over the weekend of like the four major banks they're sitting on these losses as well well not realized yet but they yeah and, and i them. and but the other point i bring up is that that 700 billion i don't know have the tweet i think it was caitlin long that put it out that had like that showed the, the unrealized losses on the bond portfolios of 700 billion but um the point being that bitcoin in total is 400 billion right yeah. so like um that that unrealized mark to market loss is a direct consequence of 
the Fed having in, raised interest rates seven or eight times, and um, you know the the Fed funds rate going from zero to four and a half percent or whatever wherever it is today. Yeah, and Bitcoin's probably like four hundred fifty billion market cap today with the price screaming up towards twenty four thousand. But like in the context of the banking crisis, that was all businesses built around Bitcoin and crypto, and that market cap is even significantly lower. Yeah, than the whole Bitcoin market cap. So, Logan, can you pull up the the cash assets um, for the banks? Yeah, because, and then can you um, can you move the um, the time scale from like to basically that period where it looks very low is um, is like basically pre QE. Um, yeah. So one of the things here is that if if you go to 2000s or like leave it, leave the chart as it is, but if you're kind of looking at the 2017 time period, the amount of, and what we're looking at here is the cash ass, like the, the total cash that the, that the banks hold. So the left side of the bank's balance sheet, if we were just looking at Silicon Valley bank's balance sheet, it was the 13 billion um, that in 2017, when the fed started to signal that they were going to um, start to undo QE, the, the total cash the banks held in total was about 2.4 trillion. And they, they withdrew about 700 to 800 billion of cash, basically just going into a black hole. Um, and that caused the repo markets to break. They're basically taking the building blocks of liquidity out of the system. It's just going into a black hole. Um, and in, so from 2017 to 2019, two-year period, they drained 700 to 800 billion of, of reserves, which equated to 33% of all the cash that was in the banking system. And the important thing, I, I wrote about this in Bitcoin is not a hedge, as well as Ender's Game, which we talked about several years ago, is that when that happens, the amount of debt liabilities that exist in the system do not magically change. They're basically just taking out the liquidity that could be there to fund it. So it's like thinking about like in in arithmetical terms like the numerator stays the same but the denominator gets shrunk massively and what they functionally do each time they drain reserves is dollar for dollar introduce incremental leverage into the system the liabilities don't change the amount of cash to service them does and the ratio goes up yeah it gets blown out so when we look at what has happened over the last 12 months or really since june you know they they took out um, over a trillion dollars, right? And there's still more cash, but the credit system is also expanded expanded significantly. And so they took out more dollars in a shorter period of time. They took out a trillion dollars, which is about 25%. Um, so you say, well, they, they weren't as aggressive. But it's like, no, they took out a trillion dollars over a six to eight month time period, whereas they took out a um, 700 to 800 billion over a two year time period and that resulted in a financial crisis. So everything that can, like like people can kind of get lost in like with the consequences of the bailout and the moral hazard, but it all comes down to what the Fed is doing. And it's like, it is, it is all a function of the Fed and it all comes down to the amount of liabilities that exist in the system, specifically debt liabilities, as well as the dollars that exist in the system that could service it. And if you take out 25% of all the cash in the banking system 
after having induced massive credit expansion, this is what happens. And it's also why it's systemic to all of them, right? Like we, it's difficult to know until the dominoes start to fall as to who the weakest is. But when they drain the reserves from the system, it is actually what induces the bank run because it exposes the weakest. Um, the, the dollars come out from one place, but then it's like a, it's like a suction. Um, whoever is weakest is going to be exposed first. Yeah. And like you said, taking these dollars out of the market adds leverage to that credit exposure or that credit exposure as the monetary base was expanding, as cash was being injected into the system was already essentially being leveraged as well. When you think about yeah. the context of Silicon Valley bank, like they were issuing loans to startups or VCs, VCs looking for bridge loans to their next capital call or startups trying to monetize before they go public or get acquired as well, which is both levered bets. Yeah. But yeah. So I think that's all right. But what's actually happening is it, it's not specific to Silicon Valley bank. No. Right. Uh, any, I mean, well, that, like it could bring it back to the context of the weakest get exposed first, like venture yeah. venture companies are high risk endeavors. Right. So it makes sense that it may start there. Right. But it could also be that if you if you have a bank that has a high concentration in commercial real estate in a market that is, you know, a low growth market and the Fed starts to increase interest rates significantly, like that's probably just as prime a place to look as any. Right. Um, that there's probably a lot of what might appear to be idiosyncratic reasons why someone is weakest, but it's all correlated because the Fed is slowing everything. Like it's not a coincidence that, that venture slowing down at the same time that the Fed's draining capital out of the system and, you know, it's all related to each other. Yeah. So where do we stand now? I mean, is this what forces the hand, the Fed's revert? Well, I think that one thing I would say is, so I guess last night came out that the Fed basically fed in collaboration with the FDIC in collaboration with Treasury, because I think it required all three of them to, um, and someone can correct me on this, but I think that it required all three of those constituents, including their boards, to basically determine that Silicon Valley Bank was systemic or what what's currently happening is systemic such that they can go, uh, such that the FDIC could go beyond um their $250,000 yeah, to insure all. So, so basically they came out around 5 PM before the market, the futures open and said that, that, that they were taking care of all of the, um, insured and uninsured deposits of Silicon Valley bank. And that they, that they, that they, the, um, signature, signature bank had been shut down, um, and entered receivership and that they had this new facility, which they called something like the bank t term loan facility. Uh, and this is, a, this is the other, this is the crazy thing. Cause each time each with each passing financial crisis, they have to do something crazier. And what they did yesterday was insanely crazy. Yeah. Um, and then there were a few things that were crazy. One, the fact that they stepped into, to backstop all, um, insured and uninsured deposits because the thing with Silicon Valley bank was that like 93% or 94% reportedly of their deposits were uninsured. Um, that was crazy too. But then kind of, if we go back to the financial crisis of 2008, 
they started QE with just treasuries. And then they expanded that to mortgage-backed securities. And there were people at, in, at the time in the Fed, including Richard Fisher, who was the Dallas Fed president, who basically was like, we are operating like a hedge fund. We shouldn't be choosing uh, sectors of the economy, advantaging one or the other. And there were other people in the Fed that said, like, don't don't call us a hedge fund. Like, you know, that's not what we're doing. Um, but but that kind of movement away from just buying treasuries into treasuries and MBS and that that then kind of normalized um, the Fed using MBS or mortgage-backed securities as a way to pump more dollars into the system. Well, then in 2020, whenever, you know, like the market broke again for predictable reasons um, because they were draining the dollars as liquidity that the, 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 the highly leveraged system needed. It wasn't just treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. It was, um, they basically started creating uh, funds to buy corporate credit, um, not just corporate credit, but muni bonds. Like basically, the the leaky ship was bursting at every at, at every seam, and they had to they had to buy every form of credit out there. When you go back to 2019, I'm not sure if this was a credit facility, but during the repo spasm, they added a new facility that essentially allowed them to fund hedge fund margin trading accounts. That I know. I, I remember seeing like reports about that, but I never dug into that myself to, to verify whether or not I thought maybe like some hedge funds were participating in like the, the, um, they got access to the window. Oh, they got, okay. That's, that was the facility that they added in 2019 yeah. via proxy, but, like DFMIC or something like that. Yeah. But basically just like kind of highlighting that they had to, they had to go plug the, the leaky ship at more points. Um, because the credit system was collapsing. That's that's functionally what's happening. The credit system is collapsing when, when we're seeing this. Um, and this time, the thing that they've added, the wrinkle is, oh, okay, so the problem was that we started, we, we flooded the system with a bunch of dollars and the banks, certain of them, probably most of them went and bought these mid to, to longer duration securities, they start increasing interest rates. The market value of those loans comes down and as inflation's going up. And then what they've done now is they said, okay, so say you've got a, a treasury, and I think it's it, it's not just specific to treasury, but I think it's everything that counts as like HQLA or like a highly liquid quality assets. Um, not hundred percent sure, but basically let's just use treasuries as an example. If you have a treasury that's trading at 90 cents on the dollar and say you have a hundred million of that and say that that's worth 90 million, if you were to sell it, they'd say, you don't have to sell it, come to the fed, pledge it, and we'll give you a loan of a hundred million. That is functionally QE, right? If they were doing QE, they would say, oh, you have a treasury worth 90 million. I'll buy it for 90 million. You give me your treasury and I'll give you cash. Cash. Um, I'll credit your account with another 90 million. They're basically, that's what they're doing. They're just not saying it, right? Cause they're saying, Hey, no, we'll actually do you one better. We'll give you a hundred million, the par value of it. And we'll take those as collateral. It's basically a repo, but a repo, not at market value at, at par. And the reason why they did that was because as these bank runs were happening, or are happening presently, um, and I don't I don't expect that um, why they would stop 
really. And we can talk about why that is. But as Silvergate had to sell and realize losses, like anytime you have to go into the market and sell a loan, the market is setting the price of it. So then boom, if, if they, if, and I, I'm not saying this in the sense that like they should have done something differently. I, I do think, I mean, like I do something differently, but the whole system is fucked. So it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't. Like, yeah, they're stuck in the worst but, catch 22 but, of all time. But if they had allowed Silicon Valley Bank to uh, not necessarily even, not, I'm not talking about bailing out the depositors, but if they had allowed it to remain open and not shut it down on Friday, then as those um, depositors had said, send my money to Chase or send my money to Wells or send my money to City, then that 100 and 20 billion or however much was left. I know that they had sold a $20 billion portfolio for a $1.8 billion loss. The only way that they could have continued to satisfy that was to sell credit instruments. Cascading losses. Yeah. Cascading losses for, for the next bank for them. But because, because if they have to sell MBS or they have to sell treasuries, then the next weakest bank, whether it's first Republic or whoever else is weak, um, which they're all weak because the whole banking system is insolvent and not to pick out a few. But the point is that in order to satisfy those withdrawals, they're having to move the market lower. And so then it creates an actual larger hole for the next bank that gets in the same situation. Um, and again, that doesn't, the, the, the issue of, in, of guaranteeing uninsured deposits is set from that, 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 that's really what, what, you know, my view, why they had to like stop the, the SVB piece um, because there's a knock-on effect, but that then informed how um, I think why they basically said, Hey, don't, you don't need to sell these credit instruments, post them here and we'll give you the full value. What they're going to have to do is they're going to have to reintroduce the formal QE to, to walk the value of those bonds back up. They're going to have to be the buyer that gets the values of the bonds back up. So such that that is actually the most quote capital efficient way to stem this, massive collapse of the bank run. Like they'll convert this, post your, you know, post your unrealized losses here at the Fed and we'll give you the mark to market value at par um, or, or not at mark to market, but at par. And then over time, we're going to have to go back to the market and be the buyer of these bonds. And then as we get the value of the bonds back above par, you can then, you know, reverse out of this, take your, take your bonds back. We'll give us the cash. You know, that, yeah. that, that's how I see it playing out. Yeah. Doesn't seem good. And when you think about like the compression of these crises, obviously we had 08, start unwinding in 2017, fast forward, end of 2019, beginning of 2020, credit problems arise at the reverse course. Print money for two and a half years, or yeah, two and a half years, like beginning of 2021. Uh, yeah, like 2019 to the end of 2021. Yeah, and so that's a two, three-year period. And obviously we had this aggressive rate hike regime the last, what's called, year, not even yet. And now here we are, <laughs> beginning of 2023, Q1 2023, having to reverse course again. Yeah, March 12th is a day that, it's like <laughs> March 12th, March 12th, 2008 was when Lehman failed, I think. I mean, it, March twelfth, two thousand eight, was when um, when David Faber famously went on CNBC and asked somebody at Goldman why they weren't, or maybe no, he asked someone at Bear Stearns why they weren't 
um, why Goldman was failing to novate trades. Um, and that was basically the collapse of within a few days. Then March 12th of 2020, and then March 12th, yes, you know. 2023. Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it seems like things are accelerating, like the, the pace at which they're losing control. Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I think that's apparent. Um, that more people, you know, the system is more levered. They have less control. They, you know, each time in my view, if you, if you think about what's actually um, the mechanisms by which they try to quote fix the system, it, it, it always, it, the, the function of introducing new dollars. It's like the, the, the problem at its core is one of leverage, both in terms of the total amount of debt in the system, as well as the relationship between debt and the available supply of dollars that can that can fund the debt. And um, if anybody's interested in learning more about that, they can go read Bitcoin is not a hedge that I put out earlier this year. But that is the core of it. And at each time the thing breaks, they have to put more dollars that they that they had put in before, but also the system needs to be growing the credit system in order for it to not collapse needs to be growing and as the credit system becomes larger it actually it necessitates more nominal credit be created for it to grow um because a certain amount of liabilities are rolling off each year right so um so what what functionally happens is they have to print more money each time as the system becomes more and more fragile that induces more and more credit creation, which then as they try to, you know, reverse out the consequences of it as it, as it, you know, kind of manifests itself in inflation and volatility, then each next time it's like, it's the timing is impossible to predict, but, but I think what is foundational or fundamental about it is that the problem only gets worse. Yeah. And the outcome is very predictable. It's just when it will happen, nobody knows. Yeah. But again, another important point to really dig into well, here. Well, and also, but on that point that you're making about the timing accelerating, it's like, if you look at what they did was post-financial crisis, they waited until 2017. So they introduced cash from 2008 to 2014. Then they started raising interest rates in 2015, but they didn't change the balance sheet until 2017. So from the last dollar that they put into the system to when they started to withdraw, it was three years approximately. And then they withdrew 700 to 800 billion over a 24 month period. Well, they put 5 trillion in the system over a two year period versus 3.6 trillion over a five year period from the 3.6 trillion was 2000 into 2008 to 2014. So like they're accelerating the, they're, they put more money in the system, five trillion, from September of twenty nineteen to September of twenty twenty one, and then that had set off this. I mean, it, realistically, it was a cumulative buildup of all the money that they've printed over decades, but it gets exacerbated, and they start to signal in the fall of twenty twenty one that they're going to raise interest rates, which they start in March, but they didn't start withdrawing the liquidity from the system until the summer of last year, twenty twenty two. Well, they took out a trillion dollars in less than a year, right? So they put money in faster. They took money out faster. What does that do? Accelerates the timeline of the 
of of whatever financial Something crisis breaking. was going to happen. Yeah, and I don't. And the point I was going to make too is like another important thing to lean into, which you touched on, but we didn't articulate it this way, is that every time they add more cash, they have to get unique in the ways that they add cash. In two thousand eight, we'll buy your mortgage backed securities. 2020, we'll buy your corporate bonds, your muni bonds. Who knows what's going to happen now? But not only are you introducing more cash into the system, but you're expanding the landscape for potential moral hazard, right? Because the the announcement they made last night with the FDIC, the Treasury, and the Fed saying, essentially said, we're going to backstop (laughs) all your deposits. Like, there's no scenario which depositors are not going to be able to get their cash. And that introduces moral hazard to the banking sector. We're like, oh, they're going to they're going to backstop all of our deposits. Like we can go take any bet we want. Well, I think that, um, yeah, I think in maybe we talk about kind of moral hazard, like the whole system, the system is built on moral hazard. So it's difficult to say that the incremental moral hazard that they have introduced materially changes the, um, the broken incentives that, that already existed. They, uh, they certainly do, but to like focus, that's like focusing on the, the edge rather than the core. Um, I think one of the things that, um, you know, Bill Ackman, uh, Jason Kalkanis, David Sachs have been out there hammering for a, a Silicon Valley bank bailout. Um, now the shareholders weren't bailed out, but the depositors were, and there's the, the depositors have more value than the than the shareholders did and the same for signature, whoever it might be. And they said like, now's not the time. I think I saw something from uh, Larry Summers too. That guy's a clown. Um, but um, but saying like, now's not the time to be lecturing us about moral hazard. And it's like, realistically, now's always the time, but they're also right in the sense that like, the system from its, from its most rotting core um, got to where it is because of moral hazard. The moral, ha- the ultimate moral hazard is the Fed has the ability to print money, and so we can kind of focus or get distracted on, you know, kind of the the occurrence of the day. But the moral hazard was when the financial crisis happened. They they always had the ability to print money, and they did it in a wide scale way, larger, faster than they ever had before. But it was functionally the same. And, and what they did, though, from a, um, from a legal perspective, they, they, I think they codified too big to fail. Like they, they said, these banks are systemically important banks. They are too big to fail. Like, and, and, and when these guys are out there, it's like they're both wrong from like they were, they were wrong in the sense that they were only, like these guys, they're only looking out for themselves. They don't give a shit about America about Main Street about jobs. They were worried about their money interests, right? Let's just be absolutely clear about that. Um, but they also weren't necessarily wrong in the sense of like this is a this is a real problem. But and and I think one of them said like if, if they were or maybe they were all saying this and this was this was the the broken um, thing about it was if you do not bail out. Silicon Valley Bank depositors, then there's going to be a bank run everywhere. Well, even today there was a Silicon Valley bailout and the logical thing to do is to like still is to move your reserves to a too big to fail bank. Like, because what they didn't do was guarantee all deposits for all institutions. So if you're sitting there at 
institution, you know, three through a thousand, they have not guaranteed anything. And, and if you're in a scenario where your, your bank has been taken over by the FDIC and you're waiting to learn whether or not what they're going to do with that next one, you still have the incentive to move your deposits to JP Morgan, to Wells Fargo, to Citi. Like they codified that in 2000, in the, in the period after the financial crisis, they, they basically said, Hey, we've got this moral hazard of, um, too big to fail banks, which everyone knows that we're going to bail out. Um, oh, wouldn't this be a great idea? Let's, let's make this law that these banks are too big to fail. What do you think is going to happen? You know, like, um, and so when they bail out, you know, the 93% of deposits that were there, it's like, I don't really care. The, whole, the system's broken, you know, like it just hopefully wakes some additional people up to the fact that it's broken and that we accelerate over to Bitcoin. But the moral hazard, basically the moral hazard was always there. It was the Fed can print money. They can, they can choose who and when they bail people out. Um, humans are fallible. They always will um, in terms of like, you know, not, uh, they will always bail people out. They will not always use that power um, ratably um, or in an unbiased way. Um, and, you know, like there's a reason why Signature Bank's out of business today and First Republic's still open. No, maybe First Republic isn't open by the end of the day. Doesn't seem like um, over 24 now. Bitcoin's ripping. Holy shit. Yeah. Like, but that, but that's the other thing that comes back to it, which is, um, People, you cannot figure Bitcoin out if you have no knowledge of it. But there are people that have been aware of it that were on the periphery that weren't yet there. And then they see this and they realize, holy shit, I can't trust anybody. Or they realize, holy shit, this whole thing is based on trust. Right? So imagine th four days ago, you didn't know what Bitcoin was. You knew it was out there, but you hadn't like you hadn't started to think about it. Well, when all the banks fail, you can't just magically understand Bitcoin. But there's a large swath of people, that next wave of adopters, that were looking at it and saying like, this doesn't make sense. But maybe, you know, like, you know, I'm not going to totally dismiss it. And they've got $10 million in their bank account. And then this shit happens. And they're like, holy shit. Like, yeah, that's how they've dealt with um, Silicon Valley Bank and Signature. And if you think about the psychology, it's like that's connecting the dots for a range of people, you know, over the last three days. And they're not all of a sudden going to move all their money over, but they're going to be like, yeah, let me, let me get some of these chips off the table because that those things that the Bitcoiners have been telling me about that I didn't think that the banking system would have an all out collapse or that, um, a $170 billion deposit bank like Silicon Valley Bank could be, you know, seemingly perfectly fine one day and literally gone Go. the next. Yeah. Um, that maybe, maybe I need to own Bitcoin because it does solve this problem of eliminating trust from the system. Well, that's been the most interesting thing of the last few days is obviously we talk about number go up 21 million like you want the scarce asset, we want a sound monetary system. But I think the real value prop of Bitcoin that's being highlighted over the last week is the lack of counterparty risk if you're appropriately holding your private keys. Like I think Silicon Valley Bank 
going under and for a three-day period people being like am i going to be able to access my money really drove home the concept of holding bitcoin in a wallet that you control and whether the price goes up or down no matter what you're gonna have access to that money yeah and probably most realistically in this scenario the fed is going to print a sh- I mean, one. Well, that's, that was, there's a certain. Like, what is the magnitude of the next? Right, but there's a certainty they're going to have to print a shit ton of money. Like, I would say that they're going to have to print more money than they have before in the last episode to contain this. Um, the you know bigger boat needs more dollars to to plug the leaky ship, um, and the the boat is leaking in more places, and that's becoming apparent to people. Um, so that, that's a cert, like the, they will have to print more money. I mean, they've admitted so much, like in my mind, QE5 has started as of last night. Um, the, the swap facility is functioning the same. So, so that's there. Um, but there will like, there's some recency bias to this too, which is like normies will get all worried and then the fed will make sure that they can get their dollars and a certain swath of them will just go back to their daily lives and say, ah, that was a scare. Yeah, there's going to be more turbulence in the market, but the Fed the Fed took care of it, right? Um, so it's not going to be ma- like, a, I, don't, I don't expect that like magically everyone who, you know, is cognizant of what's happening right now is going to connect the dots. But I do think that at a fundamental level, that idea of, and satoshi nakamoto whoever he might be um you know in terms of like you know the prescience of you know one of his quotes was uh, i think it was from february 2009 right after you know a month after bitcoin was launched where he said the problem with um traditional currencies i think is the term he used the problem with traditional currencies is all the trust that's required you know we have to trust central banks not to print money uh we have to trust that banks do not you know lend the money out in waves of credit bubbles and that trust has basically been broken. Well, this, you know, 2008 broke that trust, but the system sustained itself or persisted. It just became more fragile. 2020, the same thing. Now, the same thing. Each time those people will say, you know, or not those people, but more and more people on the margin will look at it and say, yeah, I, I value this thing, Bitcoin, not just, you know, for different reasons, but more people will value it and they will come back to this episode around, um, around counterparty risk, around the fact that their entire monetary system is based on trust and that trust is broken. And the more people that that signal reaches when you're talking about a, uh, you know, that signal has reached $170 billion worth of depositors, Right at least that's Silicon Valley bank. Um, I mean, if you add it up with first Republic, cause the first Republic depositors are sitting there in the same scenario, that's not 170 billion. hundred percent of those people do not connect the idea to Bitcoin, but the signal has been sent to all of those people. Holy shit. This is fragile. And my money is based on trust. And that will be a key building block for a lot of people to then say like, hey, this thing, Bitcoin, 21 million, and I don't have to trust anybody. I might not understand exactly that, but that that makes sense if it if it holds. Yeah, completely. I mean, I had a number of conversations over the weekend of people hitting me up like, oh, I finally get it. And then like in the Bitcoin space too, but due to the fact that it has been hard historically to get a bank account, 
Uh, I know many people in the space who are running companies who had a large dollar amount <laughs> sitting at these banks, seriously considering, hey, I can't wire it to another bank. I don't have a JP Morgan account. I don't have a Wells Fargo account. I don't have a Bank of America account. Like the smartest decision I can make right now to preserve my treasury or the cash in my balance sheet is to wire money to a Bitcoin exchange, convert it to Bitcoin and hold it and just wait till this blows over. Yeah. I mean, I think that if, if you are down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, that is a very logical thing to do. It's the only thing that you can do to eliminate trust. And what do you get with that at the same time? You get to hold something that is finitely scarce, right? Um, that only becomes logical for people that are far enough down the rabbit hole to connect those dots. Now it might move people down there further to take a chance to be like, shit, I can't wake up and have this all be gone or a fraction of it be gone or not be able to access it. And that's when you also start to realize that when we talk about this word trust, that it's really about access, right? That yes. there's permit. We talk about permissionless access to the Bitcoin network that people still realistically need access to the, um, to the U S banking system. But the, that access point isn't inherently fragile because it is centralized and you can get zapped and out overnight. Yeah. It just happened, like we just said, to many people over the last three days. Yeah. And so, I mean, going back to that point of the state of the Bitcoin industry, their access to banking, like we mentioned earlier. I mean, do you think that this... Do, I have an opinion on but I want to hear yours. Is this choke point 2.0 or is Bitcoin and crypto being caught up in broader systemic issues? I, I think it will be used as a patsy, as a scapegoat. I don't think it's, obviously, I don't think it's driving any of this. I agree that it's purely Fed driven, but I do think, I don't know, it's like the big the conspiracy theorists because it was all, there's a lot of perfect, uh, sequence of events that have happened um, starting this time last year where you just have the blow up of Terra Luna, the blow up of 3AC, the blow up of BlockFi, Voyager, Celsius, and inevitably FTX. You get a cooling off period and then boom, first bank to go down to Silvergate. Second bank is somewhat tangentially related Silver, Silicon Valley. And it seems like if the government wanted to point and in that, and in the last three months, you've had Elizabeth Warren saying this is creating a systemic risk. Like these companies should not have bank accounts. I think they're rearing the narrative engine to to pinpoint the, this cause of the crisis on Bitcoin and crypto. But um, no, I don't think it's the cause. And I do worry that it could be successful in painting that narrative, and it could be hard for businesses to get bank accounts to begin onboarding people to Bitcoin. But who knows? Yeah, I mean, I think that um, there's clearly constituent. What, what's the saying that uh, never let a crisis go to waste? Yes. Right. That I think that this is something similar where the Fed has caused a crisis. I don't think that they had um, Bitcoin in mind, but then others will seize on it to try to make people in the world of Bitcoin's lives harder, right? Um, I don't think that it's a coincidence that um, Signature out and that they there were there were reports on Bloomberg that there were at least three other banks, like, like realistically there's a lot more than three other banks that are in a similar situation, but it's like Signature out 
Now, I would guess that more banks are going to be taken over by the FDIC. So it's like, hey, maybe it was just this capital could move a lot quicker based on the, the nature of the deposits. Um, but that at the end of the day, Bitcoin's there to replace the dollar. And that the idea of everything is good for Bitcoin and that Bitcoin strengthens in stress that people are going to go out and find other banking relationships, right? And so if we're here in Austin, again, like now all the regional banks seemingly have problems, but um, but JP Morgan is also banking Coinbase, right? So um, or at least they were, and I expect that they still are. Um, I know that Coinbase was using Silicon Valley Bank and um, Signature as well but um, that people are going to go have to rely on relationships to get access to bank accounts. But at the end of the day, Bitcoin ha has to survive independently of the dollar system and that episodes like this will actually accelerate that process, right? And that's, um, I don't want to turn to it just yet, but that's kind of part of my issue with this whole Noster thing too. That's like, <laughs> there's, there's a lot that needs to be built <laughs> Like, well, everyone wasn't expecting you to bring up last. Well, everyone's fucking around with like social apps. It's like, you know, for the last month and a half, two months, like then the banking system collapsed, and then the banks that that Bitcoin companies have been relying on are gone overnight. But everyone's fucking talking about social apps, you know. I see now. And we're in the middle of this. I see. <laughs> Parker's been screaming at me in the comments for like two months like stop talking about Monster we've got to fix this money system first it's like if you didn't have access to the US banking system as an on-ramp what would you build right that's what people need to be thinking about in Bitcoin because that's what that's ultimately what's going to have to exist and that on the one hand it's going to make a lot of people's lives more difficult of like access to banking because the bank dollar system is still the predominant system. And it's like, we can't, we can't put our heads in the sand and act like that's not the case. But ultimately that won't be there. It will all have to be rebuilt. And so thinking about when, when these type of events happen, when, whether it's choke point or just, you know, like go back to when, I mean, this was before I was even in Bitcoin, but just using as a relatable example, when Mt. Gox failed, could be like, oh shit, this shit, you know, dreams over. And it's like, no, what, what did people, what did the free market do? It set off a wave of of advancement of self custody, right? What what will this do? It will set off a wave of advancement of uh, of transactional circular and, economy application. Yeah, and and not just like circular economy in the sense of like um, I'm gonna go buy and good, but but the tools that are necessary to um, to make that happen. Right, because it's not just like as easy as I'm going to facilitate a payment. Like, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to get built between then payroll services. Then you know, um, so it's like what what if I couldn't rely on the dollar system to to be this intermediary good? What would I do? Um, and I th and I think that that will set off a wave of people thinking. Not to say like everything that people decide to build is just going to magically work, or that they're going to get the timing right. But those are the type of things that happen when, you know, kind of everyone's waking up and saying, ah, yeah, like maybe I took this, you know, I can use the dollar as an intermediary for granted. What would I build if that weren't the case? Because it seems like now maybe I need to be thinking about that on a, on a much shorter time horizon. Well, with this context in mind, what is your priority list of things that need to get built look like? 
I mean, I, I think it's um, ultimately facilitating direct commerce. Um, and that doesn't mean like, hey, we really got to focus on this word circular economy, but it is like, hey, like thinking about, you know, what would it look like to um, pay for power in Bitcoin or what would it look like to pay for gas in Bitcoin or, um, you know, how do we educate the people that have the resources? Because education is a big part of this, right? Like, the I think the biggest risk to Bitcoin is surviving the the dollar's destabilization event because the dollar coordinates economic activity and we all rely on the dollar. Um, and that it's making Bitcoin functional and viable as a direct... Um, Competitor. Or, or you know, like a... Functional in directly facilitating commerce and directly facilitating commerce means not using the dollar as an intermediary, you know, so, so, and the analogs is like, well, what are all the things, how are all the, the ways that the dollar are used, right? Um, because like an e-commerce payment is different than a, um, Utility like, bill like if you were thinking about settling oil for dollars, it would be different than if you were buying something on the internet. And it would also be different than if you were buying something at a point of sale system. Yeah. Right. In person. So like the word payment has many different variants. If you were managing payroll in Bitcoin, how would you do that? Uh, there's a lot of privacy concerns when you start to think about, you know, well, if um, a company was, you know, out of a single transaction paying all of its employees, then every employee could theoretically know, you know, like what everybody else well, is making. Right. So um, the word payment is like overly broad. Right. But it's thinking about all the different types of transactions and then what are the most important or what are the most important relative to where we find ourselves today. So that's like one half of it. The other half of it is like help educate people who have critical skill sets or that you view as critical. Right. Because there's everything subjective, but things like, you know, energy and food and transportation and, you know, right. Like the getting getting those people to be in a position to be able to see this. Like one of the things I put out yesterday was like we got to get Bucky's. I saw I retweeted that. You know where, but it's like, well, there's actually a technology that needs to be built. Um, and when I say technology, I use the term loosely. There's infrastructure, the software infrastructure that would need to be built if someone wanted to be able to take Bitcoin and payments for as a gas meters running. It's similar to what companies like, um, Sonoda or, um, um, Satoshi's energy, Satoshi energy. There's a few others distributed charge are thinking about like ways to, to use the lightning network to facilitate payments. But, but realistically it's like, Hey, if, if nobody who sells gas accepts Bitcoin and the dollar hyperinflates, that's a real problem. But how, how are, how are you going to get there? Just using it as a, I'm not saying gasoline is like the only thing we have to be concerned about, but what I'm talking about is like thinking about the problem. First, somebody that sells gas has to know enough about Bitcoin to be willing to deploy it, right? Or to be able to put themselves in a position to receive it. That's one half of the equation. The other half of the equation is, well, how would you technically do that? Yeah. You know, would it be feasible? And, um, and things critical points because when I think about something like that, it's like, okay, well, if, if someone who was delivering gas to 
you know, a, a community of people, well, they've got a bunch of customers too, because then they got to go up the chain, right? Because there's that ultimately that's oil and refining and getting it to gasoline. Um, but like thinking about like the critical economic points that matter the most, um, because those things don't just magically happen overnight. Um, and if people are diligent about spreading the word, the more people that have Bitcoin and understand Bitcoin at the at the point of the dollar destabilizing, the more probably the less pain that's going to have to be felt. Yeah, completely agree. And now I see why you've been telling us not to focus on Nostra for the last couple of months. Yeah, I mean it's like if, if you go into a full on banking crisis, it's like it's like being thrown into the you know being thrown into to water when you, you either sink or swim. Yeah. Right. And that that's also why, um, you know, I don't get too caught up. I like I, I do think that there is a like the hypocrisy of like the people like Bill Ackman and um, David Sachs and Jason Kalkanis, like it, like to a certain degree, it makes your blood boil. But then you have to kind of put that down and be like, honestly, like the whole system is broken and you got to keep your eye on the prize. Um, it's like, yes, those people were looking out for number one. They don't give a shit about, you know, they're not patriots. They're not, you know, they're not in this for the American people. Um, and, and if you kind of detach from like some of the cronyism that happens and like, yeah, it's like, yeah. So Silicon Valley people got bailed out, whatever. Like the whole, the whole system is broken and we have this new system, Bitcoin. And, but if we don't focus with urgency to, to build the things that we need and, and get distracted, then it's not to say that, I mean, Bitcoin will survive. It's just, we either have to tolerate more pain of economic instability or less. And the more focused and the, um, the quicker um, that we can build infrastructure to divorce from the, the destabilization of the dollar, the better. Agreed. And again, it's pretty crazy that this is all happening right now as we're leading into the Bitcoin takeover at the end of this week. There'll be a lot of Bitcoin events here in Austin during south by southwest throughout the week and again talking about the motivation the front end the first order that you need to knock down before you get to that implementation is educating these key stakeholders throughout the economy about why bitcoin like how has the events of the last few days sharpened what we're about to do this week in austin yeah and i really think about it as like this is bitcoin week every every i like to say every Every week is Bitcoin week in Austin, which it is. Um, more and more Bitcoiners are showing up to the, the shores um, from wherever less. Uh, They're retreating. Yeah. Falling back. Yeah. Um, consolidating. Um, and, but so Tuesday we've got um, the Austin Lightning Developers Meetup here at the commons Wednesday, we're having an HRF event with, uh, Alex Gladstein, um, human rights foundation, kind of talking about what he's doing, not only with the human rights foundation, but also in around Bitcoin to advance freedom throughout the world. Thursday, we've got a series of events. Lisa's doing a, uh, Lisa from base 58 is doing a node LARP. So kind of, uh, I've never done it. I'm looking forward to doing it. Um, an interactive kind of, a uh, Red mastering Bitcoin, kind of understand fairly well how Bitcoin transactions work, but a live interactive session where you're actually participating in uh, at a technical level to understand that. Um, then we're having awesome Bit Devs later that night, and then that that leads into 
the Bitcoin takeover on Friday where the commons will be um, wall to wall. We've got 20 speakers, 12 talks, um, kind of cover the range of, you know, the kind of really trying to do, do a number of things through the takeover, but um, it, it's really built for people that are highly engaged in Bitcoin as well as expanding the tent and sending that signal to um, new people as much as being valuable, which is hard to solve for both of those two. Um, but but striking a balance to kind of go into kind of deepening people's understanding of Bitcoin while it's like sending a signal to stakeholders that might not be as engaged or, or engaged at all to say like, yeah, I thought that this thing Bitcoin was, uh, you know, kind of just like another thing to trade on the screen. But there's a bunch of people here that are laser focused and a bunch of smart people doing a lot of interesting things, building infrastructure and talking about Bitcoin on a plane that I had never thought about it on. Um, and so, um, you know, really that's what the, the takeover is about. And I think that it happening this week where we're in the midst of, you know, bank runs and bank failures and systemic crisis, that I think it, it will sharpen a sense of purpose of why people are here, sharpen a sense of engagement, also help galvanize people because it is like, it is a little bit scary. Like, you know, what, what if you went to the bank and you're, debit card didn't work, you know, like that, you'd be like, what the fuck would you do? You know? So, um, it's not to make light of any of that. Um, but I do think that it happened, you know, the takeover in Bitcoin week in Austin this week happening with the backdrop of what's happening in the legacy financial system, it does renew a sense of purpose as well as individual focus of, of why we're here, what we're doing, um, and how we're going to move forward. Yeah. What would we say to those, those people that we're trying to bring in to expand the tent like this week? You think any of them were saying like, ah, oh, I can't go to Austin. Like things are too crazy. I need to uh, put my house in order uh, because the but, banking crisis is unfolding. Like, why should I mean, you take time this week to come learn about Bitcoin? Yeah. I mean, I think that um, there are certain people that, I mean, like if you work for Signature, you work for Silicon Valley Bank, like I get it. But um, anybody else, it's like the time now is like the only way we're moving forward is is by forward direction. Um, and that now is the time to engage. So it's like it, like everyone has to take care of their, their home base. Right. But, um, but you have to do that while you continue to move forward. And there, I, I would view, you know, it's like, I'm so glad that the, the takeover is happening this week because it is that it is a galvanizing force, but it also refocuses where it's like, whatever you were doing on whatever timeline, whatever interest you had in Bitcoin, it should be accelerated by this. Agreed. Right. You should be more motivated than ever if you're building in the space. And that's another interesting thing to bring up. Obviously, Bitcoin was birthed in the aftermath of the 2008 great financial crisis. Between now and then, we've had European credit crisis, Cyprus, uh, in like 2012, 2011, 2012. Fast forward COVID. March 12th, 2020, and now today, 2023, we have this banking crisis. Bitcoin's reaction to this particular crisis that's unfolding right now seems to me to be very different than in the past. Like, it seems like it's at a point of maturity where people are treating it differently in the midst of these crises. Yeah, I, well, one, I think that the crises are all different. Mm -hmm. um, and the timing's also different, right? Like... Um, I mean, it remains to be seen, but, um, 
the the timing is different in the sense of like Bitcoin has been going down for two years, you know, or like, and when I say down, like I, I really try not to think about it like, you know, like stock trading, but like there's been a lot of selling, you know, from really starting in the, in March of 2021, April, right? Like now kind of like rebound a little bit, but then, you know, end of 2021, 2022 is like, that's all, it all feels like one cycle to me. Um, and so it's just like anybody who was a weekend, like doesn't mean that somebody else doesn't, you know, have some liquidity need that pops up because of everything that's happened or get skittish or doubt something for some random reason. But that any weak hand has functionally been selling for a long time already. And there just isn't that and you know, directionally can't be that much more marginal selling pressure because if you're still holding Bitcoin after all the shit that's happened, um, you probably know something that other people don't. And that does not mean that everybody does right. Information is imperfect and there's still a chance that there's weak hands there, but that directionally there's a lot less of them. So at the same time that that setup happens that, oh yeah, there's this other banking crisis or another banking crisis that has happened that's reinforcing the exact reason that you were there in the first place, that each next time that that happens, you would expect some different behavior. Now, in a dollar liquidity crisis though, everyone still needs dollars. So everyone has to be like massively like have your head on a swivel, you know, like survive all weathers. Don't expect that just because Bitcoin's rebounding in the face of this, like that is both a very good sign, but it's like, keep your eye on the ball. Like, you know, check your six, you know, prepare your life that at any point Bitcoin could drop 40% overnight or 50% overnight because it can and it has. Um, but I do think like taking in what's happening, it is all relevant. Like all of this is playing out at a time where um, weak hands have already been shaken violently out of the Bitcoin tree. Um, what is unfolding is exactly what Bitcoiners broadly have been talking about, why Bitcoin is so important. Um, and they're starting QE5, right? Um, so... Um, the, the future is uncertain, but 21 million Bitcoin, they're going to print a shit ton of money. Yeah. I mean, you have to imagine there's a Hank Paulson-like character somewhere throughout the banking sector on his knees in front of the Biden administration or Jerome Powell. Like, you need to step in and not only step in, but step in massively. Yeah. I mean, shit, that was Jason Kalkanis and David Sachs and... You know, but I hear you. Like, I'm just saying, like in like the the political climate. I bet I I, w I would guess that you know people in the administration were looking at you know things that those people were saying online, saying we need to do this. I'm sure there were people within the Fed that were saying that as well. Um, it's inevitable, though. I think like that's that's what I try to you know kind of rise above the fray. Be like, this isn't about this episode. It's like if if I think about the broadest picture because people were also talking about this where they're well if deposits aren't insured above 250 which they never were but like if, if like if they actually honored the the system then people are just going to hold treasuries and i it's like whenever silicon valley bank sold their deposits their reserves to buy treasuries somebody else now has them so 100 percent of deposits are held always by everyone 100 percent of reserves are hundred percent treasuries. But if you like look at the broad dynamic, um, the, I think the amount of deposits that are out there, which is 
kind of demand deposits, time deposits. M2 is like 22 trillion. If you, if you pull, we don't need to pull it up, but, but the, um, the amount of cash, all cash the banks have is 4 trillion or no, 3 trillion. It was 4 trillion. And then they took a trillion out. So there's seven X levered to deposits, right? Cause like in addition to deposits, there's, you know, which is one form of credit is there's treasuries and there's MBS and there's all these things, you know, like you want to get real scared, like go look at the Fannie Mae balance sheet. They have like something like 70 billion of cash and like 4 trillion of loans. Holy shit. You know? Um, and they've got a reserve against them of like 0.2%. So, um, but, but the point is that like, as soon as you go beyond, there are 22 trillion, uh, like M2 is 22 trillion deposits, 22 trillion. Those are claims, you know, not all demand deposits, but, but, you know, I don't, we could pull up the, the distribution, but like those are a deposit is a deposit deposit in someone's mind that if they show up to the bank and they ask for it, it's there 22 trillion of those. And the banks only have 3 trillion. So doesn't matter if you say I'm going to honor all insured and uninsured deposits from Silicon Valley bank. That is the dynamic that exists. And if you have this too big to fail prep scenario, the people are going to have the, the incentive to move. Um, but it all comes back to the fact that there's too much debt and there's not enough dollars and the amount of debt necessitates that they have to print more money and the whole economic system breaks down because as they print money, the actual utility of the currency degrades or debilitates to the point where it can no longer function. And we are certainly accelerating that path of when it, no longer works. Yeah. I mean, to, to fix the systemic crisis that exists in the banking sec sector, you have to create a systemic currency crisis with the value. With, right. With the value because, with, yeah. because if, because if you think about that world, 22, 22 trillion of deposits, 3 trillion of actual cash. Each time there's a run, the reserves stay the same. The deposits stay the same. They're just moving from the weak to what is perceived to be a stronger place. And the only way to make the system as a whole quote stronger is by increasing the 3 trillion um, such that the, the relative movement of the deposits on the top expose a bank as being insolvent less and less. Uh, and that's what they will have to do. That's what they always have done. Um, and uh, so they will have to, to increase the money supply that it will cause the function of credit to, stabilize increase but the but the currency itself will degrade um because it will exacerbate it will allow existing imbalances to be sustained and cause greater balances to grow yeah you heard it here first freaks qe5 has started it started yesterday started yesterday about 6 6 30 p.m eastern yeah less than 24 hours ago Whew. anything else we should add before we wrap up here I mean, I think it's just to stay focused um, and it's like not to get caught up in the what's happening at the edges. It's like I kind of had this like mixed emotion where it's like it doesn't really matter whether they bail out Silicon Valley Bank doesn't matter whether they bail out and and like how you're thinking. About, I mean, the ba the depositors got bailed out 100%. It was a bailout. Signature Bank, same. The only one that didn't need a bailout was Silvergate. Like, um, 
you know, so, and others will need bailouts too, but that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter because like, it's like, it doesn't, doesn't matter where the crisis, the next crisis was going to, uh, where the symptoms of it were going to emerge first, they were always going to have to print money. And Bitcoin ever since, you know, 2009 or a few years after when it's, when it, you know, kind of initially probably fortified that it works has been the solution. So nothing has changed in that regard. Right. And like people can be pissed off that, um, some wealthy people got bailed out, but like getting hung up on that is distracting, distracting. Um, and that the, the productive use of something like this is like, okay, let's, let's refocus on what it is we're building, how we're doing it, what timeline, how we think about it. Um, because at the end of the day, like Bitcoin is not like any, anybody who thinks that the dollar and Bitcoin are going to coexist in my view, or it's like they're either living in a fantasy land because they, and they don't want to think about the, what, what it means for the dollar to destabilize or, um, or they just haven't connected the logical dots that, that it, it won't make sense to have a currency sit on top of Bitcoin or yeah. in parallel. I've and never, it, I've never liked the theory that Bitcoin's going to strengthen the dollar. Like it'll be yeah, like I, mean, I, I think that it's, I think it's, it's literally just something that people say, um, you know, oftentimes because they don't want to, to become a political pariah. Um, but it's also not accurate, you know, like if presented with a scenario where I could have Bitcoin and it would be trustless and I could have permissionless access to it and I could have, you know, both per permissionless access to hold it as well as to transmit it, that is always going to be better than any other currency. Yeah. Um, if you put a dollar on top of that, well, give me the Bitcoin. Everyone's in that, like in that trade-off. Um, and so I think that kind of the, the productive thing to do is say, okay, like we're not always going to live in this dollar world. And, um, and there's things that if we start to say like, Hey, maybe this, this non-dollar world is, is sooner than we think it might be because of, you know, the accelerating events probably always has been the history was written, but you know, what am I going to do different today with that knowledge? Um, because it is an immunizing function for Bitcoin. Boom. A few banks that everyone relies on gone. Well, some people are going to survive other, not everybody might, but some people are. Um, and the ones that do are going to adapt and it is going to create this further decentralization of the Bitcoin network. Um, because ultimately the decentralization of Bitcoin's liquidity comes in direct commerce. Someone selling something at a store, uh, a car dealer selling cars, that liquidity builds. And right now, liquidity in Bitcoin is logically and, and, and I think reasonably consolidated in the most liquid asset, which is the dollar or the euro or the yen or whatever, whatever currency it might trade against. Um, but ultimately, money is not only the most liquid good, it's the good that has the greatest diversity. And that when people think about selling a stock for dollars, that's that the thing about the dollar's liquidity, but the dollar's liquidity is goods and services. And that's what Bitcoins will become. And we don't have to focus on like, we need circular economies. It's just that we need to be building infrastructure to allow for direct commerce, to allow for Bitcoin's liquidity to diversify. Um, because 
that's where it was logically going to go anyways. And now the, the risk to the system is more clear and more present than it, than it was to a lot of people yesterday. Yeah. Batten down the hatches freaks. And, um, come to all the Bitcoin events in Austin. Um, I've got a few tickets in my back pocket um, that I've held on to. So if uh, if there's any, if there's a, a freak or two that that sees this and says, "Hey, I need to get to Austin this week," um, just for the freaks. Yeah. Here. DM me, DM Parker. I was gonna say, batten down the hatches, get focused. If you aren't invigorated right now and motivated to fix these problems, because like you said, it was a bit unnerving <laughs> over the weekend to watch all these banks fail and prominent people, prominent companies not able to access their money really drove the problem that we're trying to fix to the fore very aggressively in a short amount of time. We've got a lot of stuff to build. Yeah. We've got a lot of people to educate. A lot. Yeah. That's a big part of education. Like helping people that have these skill sets that are critical um, to our energy supply chains, particularly way more important than a lot of other things. Agreed. All right. Let's go get to work. Yeah. Peace and love, freaks. The key.